the best way to optimize, especially for new entrepreneurs, but this holds true no matter what size business I've ever been in. Write down everything you hate about your job. And that's where you start. Because when you dislike something, you do it slower. There's a reason why you dislike it because it's usually the uncomfortable. For new entrepreneurs, it's usually the thing you suck at. Attempting to simplify the complexities of entrepreneurship and what makes for a good life. This podcast is riddled with questions, ideas, philosophical food for thought, tangible takeaways, and honest stories that highlight one man's journey. My name's Evan Shank. Welcome to the podcast, Which Way Now? What's going on, Which Way Now Nation? Welcome to another episode. This is a cool one. I know I say that every time, but man, these things just keep getting better and better. And this guy that I've got with us today, he's got a cool story I'm excited to share with you. So let me tell you a little bit about him. He created his first manufacturing company with just $600 at 15 years old. He now owns and operates the last standing made in America factories and has hatched a plan to give back the factories and some of his wealth to the American workers. Co-founding the company Mosaic and becoming CEO, his talents are far beyond running the company with duties touching conceptual development, engineering, and deployment. His emphasis on Made in America is a driving force for how the various companies he's co-founded operate. He's also the CSO of MRCA, which is a private investment firm that invests in established U.S. manufacturing companies. Outside of wearing all of these hats, which he has many, this man runs a branch with his wife in Texas. He's riding dirt bikes, gotta love the dirt bikes, plays volleyball, enjoys a good whiskey tasting, and believe it or not, he's a nationally ranked wrestler. His name is Jason Azevedo, and he is the man of the hour today on the Which Way Now podcast. What's up, Jason? How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, Evan. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, this is good. This is good. So we, we are here recording on a Friday. Have you had a good week? You feeling energized? I know you had a lot of other uh, podcasts, interviews, things like that lined up this week. You still got some in the tank oh, for yeah. us? This, uh, I, I'm looking forward to talking. It's always fun. And coming off of a really solid week, I, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> Heck yeah. Love it. I love the energy. And uh, we had the chance to talk a couple of weeks ago on the phone and just kind of get to know each other, see if we could put together a great episode for our audience here. And I really just want to, before anything else, give you the floor to give us a bit of your backstory. When we had talked on the phone, you started this apparel company and it was kind of like out of your backpack. And it was like, a, it's an interesting thing. You found a problem. You're very entrepreneurial. You found a problem, you created a solution and look where you are now doing all sorts of stuff. So tell us, Tell us the inception story of Jason so, and how you got yeah, to where you are. Yeah, I'll kind of take you down the story. It, it takes a couple different paths. So okay. I'll set the stage. It is February of 2007. I decide with my brother, we are going to start an apparel manufacturing company. And we're, we've got $600 to our name. I'm 15 years old. He's 20. We, we decide, okay, we're doing this. And at a parallel path, my father had worked in a factory my whole life and he 28 years 29 years at the same company in the last coming up to 2007 2008 he had gotten laid off seven or eight times with changes in ownership management that was frankly at the throats of the employees 
really a, a, a toxic environment. And they were one of the most profitable plants in the country for the company he worked for. But they kept on having problems there because, frankly, they were treating their, their people horribly. So here we are. We're starting a manufacturing company. Our father works in a manufacturing company, and we make promise ourselves we're never going to be like that. And we, uh, we want our, our front of house and our people and our floor people to be in sync and, and enjoy it and feel fulfilled and have a great job. So we go back to the fact it's February of 2007. Right as our business is starting, things getting going, we are pushing forward. We start buying equipment. Here comes the fall of 2007 and the beginning of 2008. Oh, and everyone knows what just suddenly happens to all markets. <laughs> and we yeah. had a brand new business. <laughs> we were just getting going. And every person around us is telling us, don't do this. This is a horrible time to start a business. You guys are crazy. Definitely don't do it in manufacturing because that's a horrible industry. And they're just, one of the interesting things is every person saying this is people who've actually never done anything in the business world in their lives. They've, just, they've worked for companies. No, no entrepreneur is telling you this. So we're, we start taking this in. We're like, oh, we're, this is a bad idea. Don't start a business now. Definitely don't start a manufacturing business now. And someone said something to us that completely snapped us out of it. You're going to lose everything you have. I'm 15 years old. I have $600. <laughs> this person is telling me I'm right. going to lose everything I have. I don't have anything. <laughs> and it clicked. But it somewhere. feels like everything too, kind of at that yeah, moment. Exactly. But it clicked <laughs> in that moment that what every person is telling us is their own personal insecurities. Their, their reasons why they've never started a business. The, their fears, their and we're taking them as if they're our own. So we yeah. instantly snap and go, wait, let's go think of people and let's go look at other downturns in markets. We, what has happened there? Well, you start realizing all the greatest companies in history have started during downturns because the, the barrier to entry is lower and there's more clients floating in the ether. So we pivoted and started using it to our benefit that equipment was now selling for pennies on the dollar. Our, the biggest customers in the, in the country for our, for our industry at the time, a lot of them had been working with these large conglomerates who end up having to go bankrupt because of cash flow problems in, in 2008. So they still had tons of clients. They just didn't have enough clients to cover their overhead. So now you've got these amazing giant clients floating in the ether. So mm -hmm. we said, okay, <laughs> we'll take you and you and we start picking them up. <laughs> well, and that's, it's weird too, because it's like, it's an interesting thing because we have to really set our emotions aside, but it's that whole uh, Warren Buffett thing, I think was the one that's like, be greedy when other people are fearful and fearful when other people are greedy. And as we see this turbulence in markets, you know, and it's kind of rocky even right now here in summer of 2022, um, you know, there's a cyclical pattern to all of this stuff. And it is really challenging even for the successful entrepreneurs and business owners to be able to set aside their emotions at certain moments and act based off of um, something that's a little bit more objective and what seems to be just fundamentally true. 
I always look at it as you're not setting your emotions aside because your emotions and your gut are one of the most powerful things you have in business. It's mm-hmm. giving them equal, equal opportunity with the facts and realizing that facts aren't always facts. Oh, the markets are horrible. That's not ever true. Now, there's never a time that every single market in the world is horrible. It's, hey, the manufacturing, the industrials market, the airline industry might be horrible. Right. But, you, but there's still going to be winners because the, the money's going somewhere. Right. So, I mean, for example, every time the economy turns down really bad, alcohol sales skyrocket. So there's funny <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah. So there, um, 2008, one, every, every industry is crying about bloodshed, but one industry very quietly put up the highest profits they ever had. And that was the entertainment industry mm-hmm. because people were looking for escapes. So right. it, it's it, it really understanding that you just balance. Hey, w- there's always opportunity. You just need to find where that is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just being, uh, being a creative thinker. And that's something, I mean, here with the audience base of just budding entrepreneurs want to be entrepreneurs, people just that are, you know, they have that spirit within them. Keeping your creative brain alive to be able to kind of see what may be out there that's not necessarily be talk, been, being talked about. Is, is a huge thing. There's opportunities in the cracks and corners of life at any given moment. And I think that's so wise the way you said it, that when, when everything is kind of just going to hell in a handbasket, there's, there's spots where it's not. It's never full, total bad. You know, there's a good in all of it, or you can find it if you can, you know, apply yourself towards that. Years ago, a mentor of mine said, the most important reason to keep your head up is because when everybody else puts theirs down, the people with their heads up are still, still looking for people. And mm. it's, it's rung true because when things like we're entering into a, an interesting market right now. And when things are going this path, the people who are standing up tall, see each other and you go, Ooh, that guy over there is he's in the manufacturing industry. What's yeah. going on in your industry? Well, actually, it's up right now, but you know, we don't really want to brag about it because we feel bad to everybody <laughs> else, but we're seeing some of the best years we've ever seen. And yeah. you start meeting these people, and all of a sudden, you're, you start finding those nooks and crannies like you talked about. It's, they're <laughs> there, but it's because their heads are up, and they're, they're still talking about, hey, we're going here, and everyone else's head's down. Yeah. Now, do you think just kind of in that idea for the people that have their heads up, is there, what's the best way to go about it? Because sometimes you hear kind of quotes around the idea of like, if you have something great, don't, don't be too loud about it or somebody might copy it or do whatever. So like, if you're doing really well and everybody else is kind of down, is, is it a benefit or more risk to kind of proudly say, Hey, we are doing well. Is there, what, what's going on through successful people's minds in those moments? Are they intentionally being quiet? In business and in life for that matter, you should always share as much as you can. There are things you can't. I mean, every business has its certain trade secrets. It's, hey, like with MRCA, we acquire legacy U.S. manufacturing companies. I tell everybody what I'm seeing in the market, this. But if you ask me what acquisitions I'm currently working on, 
I will not never tell you until it's the paperwork signed because I've done the work to find out that that's a good one. Now, I will tell you, hey, I'm liking these industries or I'm liking this sector. So I think it's important to share information. I think when you share information, frankly, you get information back. If you see mm-hmm. somebody holding their cards 100% of the time, you don't share with them as much. So we've always balanced that where there is some proprietary stuff. Hey, I can't tell you every single thing that's happening every day. Right. But I'm always going to share with you. Like I'm a huge fan in, the, in manufacturing right now of the industrials market, the, be it like John Deere tractors or uh, I was talk, talking to someone the other day. I want to make park benches, lots of park benches. And they're like, why? I'm like, well, because there's a $1.4 trillion infrastructure bill that has to be spent. <laughs> I want things that point. have to be American made in that bill. So it's, it's understanding that you can share the information. And then, of course, keep a couple, that, a couple things to yourself. Yeah. Well, I really like that you say that. And that's my personal belief as well. Um, and it's been a challenge for me in, in my pursuit at just trying to be a a good man, a father, a husband, an entrepreneur, you know, all of these things that I wear proudly as a title of me is it's been, it can be a challenge sometimes to see the greater good to sharing certain things, especially when you're just fed wrong information. Like, like when I had brought it up early, like I, something just felt wrong about telling people like, Oh, keep everything under wraps all the time. I think yeah, it, it totally depends. So it's not one of those things where there's an ultimate yes or an ultimate no. It's not black or white. It's a very gray matter. But I think the more that we prioritize um, sharing information that's good for people in general and helps us, like it rises the tide for all of us, that's, that's great. It, you know, and it made me think while you were saying all that about like you, you watch those shows, or at least I do, where they take the camera crew back into the back of the kitchen of this really nice restaurant or whatever. And they're like opening all the doors and showing them into the fridge and the freezer and their, pro- their systems that they have in place and how they organize things. And then they're like, okay, tell us about that sauce. And they're like, ah, <laughs> can't tell you about the sauce. But hey, what we can say is there's like, you know, there's sugar in it <laughs> or, you know, that's all we're going to tell you. And it's like, okay, all right, fair enough. And that, it, I think that curiosity factor kind of keeps... Um, keeps everybody kind of hanging on to the special recipe, you know, why is KFC so crispy or whatever yeah. it is, you know, things like that. So I, I just think that's really good to highlight and talk about because there's a lot of misinformation around um, people just kind of huddling together and you start to isolate yourself with the information and knowledge um, that you have. And it, it ends up hurting not only yourself, but the opportunity for others to be able to grow out of it as well. Through my career, I mean, I, I started so young that no matter what, I was the youngest guy in the room. And what I started to realize is the people most willing to share the most information are people nearing retirement age. And unfortunately, it's pe- the people that people listen to the least because, oh, they're not up to speed with this. So I, we found great value in talking to people who are like, Hey, I've got like four years left in this, so I don't care. Here's everything. <laughs> you can't execute on that in time anyway, so have fun. Right. And so right. really also knowing where to look for those people that are just going to open up to 100%. And th- that there's huge value in that. There really is. There really is. And there's a, not only the value in what they're sharing, but just um, being able to look 
at these elders in front of us, these mentors that are out there, these giants that we can stand on their shoulders and say like, hey, I can emulate that type of behavior. And it's it's paid off in dividends for them, you know? So um, the same way can be true for me too. And you can kind of, kind of steal that play out of their playbook, so to speak. Um, I want to continue to take our conversation towards something that I know you're just a wild expert in, and I know you could go on and on about it. And I think this is a great chance for us to talk about these two big buzzwords, systems and processes. In manufacturing, I can understand from outside looking in and just, I mean, I will plead the ignorance card on this. There's so much that I could be schooled up on in just the manufacturing industry just in general, but systems and processes are huge. Like, um, for instance, like my dad, he works for a corporate window manufacturing company and he is... He is um, one of like, he's on the education side of things, helps like um, train the dealers and the salesmen on how to sell the products. But the way that their company is set up, all of the corporate level, executive level, office job type people are in the same building as the manufacturing floor. And it's actually kind of like a mezzanine to everything. So they are in the throes of like what's happening on the manufacturing floor. And they actually force everybody um, to go through the process of learning all of the steps it takes to create a window and how they keep inventory and um, how to project sales into the future and the lead time on that and on the raw materials that they're going to need. And there's, you know, packaging and shipping and account management. There's so much to it. And I think it's really cool because their philosophy is get everybody involved so they can see all elements and aspects of the business, which I believe you subscribe to that that type of philosophy as well, to a large degree, um, these things can't happen or get, you know, get big and scale and provide job opportunities and wealth to many people. That can't happen unless you have really locked in systems and processes. Is that true? It's very true. And touching on your making sure that the front of house knows the manufacturing floor, uh, we are actually running an experiment right now we just shifted one of the plants that the entire office front of house whatever you want to call them actually now sits on the manufacturing floor this is bookkeeping this is engineering that we, oh, we wow. ju we're just we're just trying the theory because we've always been all about you got to be in it you got to understand it you got to be part of it and we just said you know what let's go further let's just try putting them actually in it so that from their desk, they can see the machinery and hear it and feel it. And people are forced to talk to each other because they're right next to each other. So that we we believe in it at that level where we're, wow. we're going, we push the lever even harder at one of the facilities as a test to see what it is. And interestingly enough, we thought we were going to get a lot of pushback from the office. And they were... But no, no, we kind of like this. Like we get, we get real time hmm. data on how our projects are going and this is that work. Okay. So let's see how this goes. But yeah, on the system side, it is, I mean, that's the name of the game it is you, you systemizing and getting your process down. It, I'll take an example. We did the other day with an employee and this employee, every time the machine would cycle, he'd walk three to four feet. And this machine cycles very quickly. Oh, and, and he was kind of doing this pivot back and forth. So we have overhead cameras mm -hmm. and we decided, hey, we need to speed up. And an old school mentality is going to be, well, then the person needs to work faster. 
that that's that's not scalable. Uh, you can't just keep on telling people work faster, work faster, work faster. It just doesn't work. So we take right. these big screens and these overhead cameras and we take video for eight hours and we'll speed it up, slow it down. And it, we look like John Madden with uh, markers on top of the screens. And we're, you got people sitting there going, mm-hmm. okay, well, look, <laughs> he moves three feet. What if we could find a way that he never moves his f- footing? Oh, well, that would save him a 10th of a second every time. Oh, cool. And it makes him walk a mile less mm-hmm. each day. Okay, well, then you do this. And then you bring the teams together and go, hey, I just saved you a mile a day. Cool. Now everyone's excited. So like, I, wanted my, I don't want to do a mile either. So you start layering these, but it all starts on the, that base concept of you got to get your process down and lock it down. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is really funny how once you um, start to spin up the scale of a re- something that you repeat so much, and you know, using the example of somebody out on the floor, you know, move, maybe it's just moving this the material from here over to here, and then starting the machine or whatever. You know, it's like, well, maybe we can just we've got the floor space, we can just move those the table and the machine closer together, and now they can pivot back and forth. And holy crap, they're much happier because it's less steps for them. Um, there's less waiting around. They can just kind of get into their into their routine with it a little bit better. And then the output obviously is helping everybody in the company, you know, all the way through because it takes a village to do these types of things, especially um, just with how complex it can be to build certain products and, you know, from from step one to step 5,002, however many it takes, you know, um, you optimizing a little bit, it always pays it, off. It, it's the concept of compounding interest is those little things. While they seem minute, when you add them up at a machine cycling five, 6,000 times a day, and then you, you multiply that by, well, there's eight machines and then all that little interest starts building up. And suddenly you've added this huge, you've made everyone's life exponentially better. And you've added this huge profit margin. So it's really looking at those kind of things to get these little wins that add up like crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, it's all, it's the name is efficiency and working smarter, not harder. And just kind of looking at everything through the lens of that. Where can we optimize? And I think it's really interesting too. There's there's a couple big buzzwords I'm going to throw out there and maybe we can kind of start putting them in their place. First of all, I want to dig into like systems and processes and compare and contrast them. How do they work together? Because I think those words get thrown around a lot. And then I think there's also this other concept of, especially for like early entrepreneurs or even more so those that are like the solopreneur, they're kind of doing everything by themselves. They, they want to optimize. There's a lot of like, how can I optimize this? And it's like, well, sometimes the first thing is like, Maybe track your time or do something. You need to start figuring out your system or the process. Um, And it's like, well, there are steps before we can start to fine tune and really take that last quarter turn of the screw on this thing that you're doing, right? So let's look at, first of all, systems and processes, kind of school us up on on those terms. And then the, the idea of optimization, where those three things kind of fit together, make it make sense for all of us. Everyone has their own definition of these buzzwords. We try to avoid buzzwords as much as we can. But on systems, 
It's <laughs> the functionality of, uh, of what you're doing. What, when do, when do breaks happen? When do, how, how does payroll process? How, how do, does this clocking in work? How does the, how does that, all these functions, like why are they doing it and how do they get to where they're going? Process is exactly how you do it. And that is, your systems are what's going to keep the, the, the thing on, but the functionality mm-hmm. is the process. And that's where you can really get into pinpointing and tightening. So, hey, the system is the payroll clocks. They are going to get that data to, the, to accounting. The process might be, hey, let's stagger the clock-in times for different sectors in the plant so that I don't have five to 10 minutes wasted at the clocks because I've got a line trying to clock in. And mm-hmm. finding the, that, that process is how you actually execute and really dive into the, the minutia of, hey, if every zone checks in five minutes off of the other one, now I don't have a line, I'm not paying people to stand around for 10 minutes, which yeah. sounds minuscule, but really it's actually a big chunk of the day because you figure they got to do that when they clock out too. <laughs> yep. So yep. Th- that's really what you're looking for. So it's kind of like the system is the larger thing and then there's processes within that that support the system that you're creating and trying to tighten up. Yeah, the, the system is what needs to happen. It's what something needs to happen. You have to, you have to get payroll processed. You, you have to get something off the dock. So there's a system. Now there's going to be a ton of processes in that system. Oftentimes a process is going to come down to an individual or a, a very small cell. Okay. So Tommy and Jane, they're in their work cell and when they're working, they're, they're putting out this widget and they need to clock in and they need to do this and you do that. The system is the, hey, here's, here's, here's where we're going with it. It's going to be a lot broader. The processes you want to get down to as the smallest module you physically can and dictate how, the exact functionality of it. Then we get into the concept of optimization. The best way to optimize, especially for new entrepreneurs, but this holds true no matter what size business I've ever been in. Write down everything you hate about your job. And that's where you start. Because when you dislike something, you do it slower. There's a reason why you dislike it because it's usually the uncomfortable. For new entrepreneurs, it's usually the thing you suck at because you don't, you don't want to. I, the amount of like graphic designers that do their own QuickBooks and it's like, ah, I got to do billing. I hate billing. And it's like, yeah, pay an online person, go to Upwork, go get an account or something. Like that. Have them do it. They're going to do it faster. They're going to do it better. And you go do the things that make you money. So hmm. that, that is where if you're looking to optimize pain, get rid of pain first. It, that is if you know, oh, at the end of every day, I got to do billings. You start dreading it. So then the, the end of your day slows down, slows down. That last thing you're designing normally would have taken 30 minutes, but you know the second it's done, you got to do billing. So, oh, this yeah. probably took me 45 minutes today. <laughs> like I've seen all of this <laughs> and I've done it myself. So right. 
the, like we go into a manufacturing plant. When we go into a plant, the very first thing we do is we just watch and talk to people for usually three to six months. I just want to understand how things work, what, what sucks. And I'm trying to find things that people hate. Oh, well, what are you, what, what is going on here? Oh, I got to go inside that pipe and weld it. I wish we didn't do these jobs. Yeah. Or the other question of you watch somebody, somebody do something and they're, they're clearly struggling. Um, what, why do you do it like that? That's the way we do it. And as soon as you hear that's the way we do it, another really good time to see if you can optimize it. That means it's been <laughs> done that way for so long right. that nobody even knows why anymore. <laughs> it's so funny. That is like, and it happens everywhere. There's the whole thing, the story of like uh, the mother that's cooking like a Christmas ham for the family and their little kid says, why do you cut off the ends of the ham? And the mom goes, well, that's what grandma did. Um, and then, you know, grandma fortunately was still around in this story. And so she went and asking her mom, who was grandma said, so why did you always cut off the ends of the ham? Does it help? Does it like hold the juice in better or allow flavor to penetrate? And she's like, no, I just didn't have a tray big enough to hold the whole ham. So I had to cut the ends off just so that I could get it into the oven. And she's like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. Okay. Well, that explains that, I guess. It, yeah, we, it happens we, everywhere. Yeah, we we see it all the time. It is the, it, especially because we buy legacy companies. You're usually talking second, third generation, and it, it legitimately there'll be like a Folgers can on top of a shelf, and we we'll go through. What's up with the Folgers can? Oh, that's where we uh, store bolts. What are the bolts for? Oh, they're for a machine. Okay, what machine? I don't actually, I don't remember. Oh, we sold that machine 25 years ago. Oh, man. <laughs> and you're just like, okay. But every person in the plant knew that the Folgers can is where the bolts for the machine were stored. And nobody ever asked what machine. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, and, and that's what I think is really interesting, especially, and this is, it's, it's sad more than anything, honestly, especially when we're talking larger companies and everybody has a very defined role and title and, you know, they start to identify with that. Many of those workers that are providing tons of value to the, to the end result at the end of the day, the company itself, a lot of times it doesn't seem like they're empowered to think outside of the box or to just, or even just think critically. And it's more of, and I don't shame the person themselves. I shame or find fault with the leadership that's not encouraging them to be a part, an integral part of the process of making this as good as possible. Let's get rid of the stuff that sucks if we can. How can we make it less sucky? How can we make this thing that takes way too long faster? And then incentivize them along the way, bring them into that conversation, allow them to be a part of it. And there's, um, there's emotional equity that's involved in that. And you start to see performance output that it skyrockets it almost unanimously. It almost always happens that way. And they stick around longer. Well, and you look at the best manufacturing plants in existence right now. They're all doing that. It's, they're, it's incredibly, incredibly important to 
make sure that you've got a very cohesive conversation going on on what you're fixing and what you're not. The ones that are hurting, they're all the ones that are, no, here's the process, follow the process. But there's also another part of that. You must accept the fact you're going to break things. So mm-hmm. I watch this with plants all the time where they're so afraid that a change is going to take away production for a week, two weeks, that they can't risk making the change. There are, the, the best ones and what we try to do is be able to actually isolate lines and go, hey, the regular teams run here. I'm going to build a red team over here and we're going to try this weird thing. Let's just see if it works. And then if it works, we go back and go, great. I now have a team of experts to go show the other teams how to do it. And if you can use that model, it works really well. A lot of people get very afraid of it's all or nothing. And it's, well, if I'm going to make this change, then I I want all the lines to change because they're all going to run better. Yeah, okay, but now you're adding risk. So let's go, let's take right. a, a, a random group of people that, that are from all sorts of different lines. We're going to go try this weird, awkward thing. I'll give you an example. We have a product that we build in one of the California plants and it's a lighting product. And we had 14 people on an assembly line assembling these lights. And I get, my, my brother calls me, he goes, I have an idea, Jason. I want to build them with two people. I'm like, Okay. You're going to take 14 people or you can use two. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> he goes, well, here's my problem. We only have one production line for, for this group. If one person calls out sick, that entire line's messed up. So I want to slow everyone down a little bit and have them build them to it, uh, in cells of only two people. And they're now going to put out a product every 20 minutes out of two people. So... We took, we took two people, left the production line running, took two people mm-hmm. who, had ba- who had basically never done the job before and go, okay, we're going to build this little cell and you're going to build this. We're going to show you how to do it. First product took like two hours to build. <laughs> it, was, it was just nice. It, it was not pretty. <laughs> About a week later, they start picking up and it starts going. Now, four cells of two people puts out consistently twice as much as 14 people used to. So, wow. uh, but it was, it was a crazy idea. It was, I mean, we had people throughout the, that building going, your math will never work. It's physically impossible. And we're like, but you know what? What cost is it really? Two people for a week? Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that we're, we're going to be able to go test this out. And I think a lot of people are afraid to do tests like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, in your... Well, what you were saying earlier about this, like all or nothing mentality, we either keep everything the same because it's, if nothing else, predictable, whether we like what that predictable outcome is or not is kind of even beside the point. You know, they're either on that side where, you know, it's like, let's keep everything the same, but if we're going to change it, we've got to really go for it. And it's like, well, the whole balls to the wall mentality is like, you know, cool in some senses, like on certain movies that you go and see in the theaters where they just like throw caution in the wind and jump off the mountain or whatever, like cool. But like you were saying, I mean, this is business and we have to find a way to continue to um, move the ball down the field, so to speak. 
um, yeah. and get ourselves towards the ideal that we're working for, that we're chasing towards these goals that we have. And we're not going to do that staying the same. It's not good for business. It's not good for individuals staying the same. I've always heard this thing where it's like, you never stay in one place. You're either moving forward or you're moving backward, but everything is in motion at all times. Yeah. And you're so to keep your Folgers can of bolts, <laughs> yeah, to keep your Folgers can of bolts means you're backsliding, baby. That's what that means. So it's an interesting thing that's worth mentioning. And it's, it's a good reminder for, for me and I'm sure the audience listening here today. Uh, I want to pivot the conversation into more of your area of expertise and start talking manufacturing specifically, as if we haven't already, but <laughs> even more so. Um, kind of this, let me start. And like I said, I totally plead ignorance. So let me just, I'll, I'll come off of my limited understanding here and we'll see how you can school me up. But overseas manufacturing, American manufacturing, obviously made in America, you know, from my perspective, I think, okay, number one, that's cool because I'm, I'm in America. It's cool to see things made in America. In theory, it gives us more jobs. There's more opportunities. It stimulates the economy. It's good. But then I also hear, oh, well, it's expensive because you can get cheap labor overseas or whatever it is. And then you start doing like taxes and what, what's going on with international stuff versus doing it here. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, let's just go with the path of least resistance and hire out a company in China and they're going to handle all of our stuff or whatever. Um, like, it seems cool, like American made, heck yeah. But then it doesn't seem viable in a lot of cases. But once again, it's complete ignorance on my part, but that is my understanding. So compare and contrast overseas versus American and then just take the floor and, and, and tell us what you know. <laughs> so there, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I'll kind of start at the, the cost side because that okay. is the most, that is the most common fallacy that I hear. Mm. So most people, when they repeat, it's more expensive in, in the U S it's cheap in Asia. This is the way it is are operating off of things that they were told or learned 25 to 30 years ago. What's happened is the advent of technology automation, the increase in fuel prices have made it fiscally viable and frankly, oftentimes cheaper to manufacture in the US. Mm. I have a bias. I'm the first one to acknowledge I am biased that American manufacturing can be cheaper than Chinese manufacturing. So let's remove me from the, the conversation there. Foxconn, who is one faction, they are building a plant in Ohio. They actually just bought a, an auto plant in Ohio to build parts for Fisker motor cars for EVs. So you've got, you've got the experts of Chinese manufacturing. Mm. These are the gods. They make the iPhone. And they have figured it out. So we've right. got to break that stigma because it's ingrained in us, especially if you're not around the manufacturing industry. It is, it, we, yeah. were, we, we were told it because it was true. Before, it, the, the technological advancements in the last 20 years, but let's, 20 years ago, you didn't have a cell phone in your pocket. You couldn't know every piece of information in the world in three clicks. People don't connect that to the manufacturing industry. Right. For some reason, there's this mental block 
that it hasn't changed, that it's still Charles Dickens with dirt floors and Tiny Tim putting his hand into a machine. Like there, that there's a fallacy built in there. So that is one of the big opportunities that we, we found with the, the private equity fund is you've got these great companies. Production's coming back to the U.S. in folds. And it's not only American companies that are coming in. You get the, the, throughout the world, people are like, hmm, we're building, um, let's build some American manufacturing plants. That sounds good. And then add in the fact that fuel prices are, they're, yeah. they're, they're skyrocketing. And, and e- this last increase, that's, this last large increase isn't the only one. I mean, they've been consistently going up for years. So we've, th- th- that balance is going and frankly, America consumes a lot of products mm-hmm. and American products are wanted throughout the world. So that market is growing, but tech, technological advancements and advancements in process and how we treat people and how we develop these businesses is what's led it to no longer being true that other markets are cheaper. Well, that's a really good point that I hadn't thought of. And yeah, I totally fall into that camp where it's like, it seems like all industries are progressing minus manufacturing. And it's not that it was a conscious thought of mine, but you know, it's just kind of an out of sight, out of mind. I assume that it just kind of continued like factories are factories. And yes, now there's some automation involved and now we've got robot arms that help out. And you know, that's the extent of my understanding. Um, and that's really cool. So what does that do for us as Americans having more American factories. I mean, I would assume it stimulates the economy. It, you know, beyond that, what's, what's the advantage of all of this? So there's a couple things. First off with MRCA, one of our primary goals is to protect the local communities that manufacturing companies exist because these are very special communities. These manufacturing companies are huge parts of them. And we want to make sure we protect that as far as even to the point that when we, we liquidate the fund, we're liquidating through an employee stock ownership program to give hundred percent of the shares to the employees. But why is manufacturing special and more important than just economies or anything else? Name one other industry that almost every company in the industry, you can walk in with no formal education. They will pay you well. They train you on the job and will continue to promote you and bring you higher and higher in the organization and making very good livings like manufacturing. There just isn't. So if you want something that's really has the ability to, to pull up a society and strengthen it, that is, this is the, this is the bazooka of an economy. You can just strengthen the living heck out of it all. And the cool mm-hmm. thing about manufacturing is manufacturing provides more manufacturing. So if you're making this component, that person makes this component, they, they assemble them here and they sell them to somebody else, that progresses. So frankly, if you look at every country who has grown and taken over as world power and become, become a very good, solid country – they all did it on the back of the manufacturing. We talk industrial revolution. We, we talk China's growth was on the mm. back of manufacturing. It is a tool to strengthen things because it is the core of our communities and, and everything we use. 
Yeah, I mean, it all starts there. And it is really interesting, this concept that you just mentioned of manufacturing leads to more manufacturing. And it's this idea that creation leads to more creation. I'll um, use my own example of it. And it's it has nothing to do with manufacturing, but it makes me think about this. I think there's a parallel here. And it's the idea of like, uh, for me, like trying to create content to push my personal brand and everything that I'm doing. and there's this like this thing if you're at the beginning of that journey where it's like, all right, well, I only know so much. So how much content can I really make? I'm supposed to be posting X amount of times a day on how many different social media? If I have any chance of being successful, you know, all of that stuff. And you're like, crap, I don't know that I can do any of this. And what has been, I have found to be true in my life and seems to be true, anybody else that creates content using this example, is the more content you create, the more you come up with. And you're never going to get to the end of your idea bucket, so to speak. Like the more that you are willing to pull out of that idea bucket and then share it with the world, more comes in. And then before you re realize it, like in that example, you start getting feedback from people because you're building an audience and they're interested in what you have to say. And so now they have their own ideas and stuff that they want to, you know, push past you and questions piggybacking off of that, which turns into more content, more ideas, more growth, creation. The more you create, the more can be created. It's just kind of an interesting thing. I know that's kind of like a weird way to say it, but I never really thought about that in the manufacturing side of things. That's, that makes sense. Yeah. It's so I, I've explained to people oftentimes as marathon runners. So marathon runners have this thing called the wall and it's when you're running and you just don't want to anymore. It's over games. We do not want to play this marathon anymore. It sucks. And every single marathon runner knows what happens next. If you push through, right? You get to runner's high and suddenly the world is just moving at pace and you got it. I can do two more marathons if I need to now. Well, that's any industry. Manufacturing is just, it's just the same, but it's, it's almost on steroids because as soon as you're making the product, you, there's someone else there to consume it. And then, well, you're, you're giving this job to make the product. Mm -hmm. So this person takes home money and guess what? They go buy a product that the next guy's making. And that's all they do. They just keep on buying each other's products. And suddenly you're in this runner's yeah. high where the whole thing is just clicking on all cylinders. Everyone's like, oh, wow. Like everybody's income's coming up. We're living better lives. We're getting to do more things. And you're like, yes, because it feeds itself. And that, that is what's super, super important. And yes. that's things that, that, and that's why you see great economic powerhouses are almost always built on the back of manufacturing. I want to have you unpack something else that you'd mentioned earlier. And it's more so kind of the initiative of what MRCA is doing and the idea of all of these workers, blood, sweat, and tears. And in many cases, years and years and years on these floors, you know, providing for their families and doing their thing. Um, you have this, you've hatched the plan. <laughs> like we said in the bio, this idea of how to, Put the ownership back into these into these people's hands and to really yeah. um have 
there's just more skin in the game. There's more ownership. There's more pride. There's more fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose and all of these big words that are so integral to living a happy and full life. MRCA is aiming to do that. Tell us a little bit more about how that works. And is it seems pretty revolutionary to me. Is this a common thing or are you the, the only ones doing it or just like, yeah, tell us all about that. I'll, I'll kind of start from the, are we the only ones doing it? So when we announced that we were a private equity fund and that we were going to exit through an ESOP to the employees and that our investors would make their, the, the biggest chunk of their profit on that exit, I legitimately had a couple other PE firms laugh. And then about a week later, call me back and go, <laughs> I just got it. It works. I'm like, yeah, it does. I was like, and, and I, I don't take full credit for it. Our fund manager came up with the functionality <laughs> of it. We knew we wanted to give something to the employees. We just didn't know the financial mechanism by which to do so. So now, since we've said that, a couple very, mm -hmm. very, very, very large PE firms have come out and said that they're going to do the same in smaller sectors of their business. So it is, it is a viable model mm. from the investor side. And that's something I, I like to hit on because it is not pu purely altruistic. The, we, we have a job to make sure that everyone's taken care of. Beyond that, what we're doing is we've decided 100% sure. of the shares of the entire national portfolio will go to the individual employees. Not the individual company they work in. Not, we are taking the entire thing and giving it to them. And the reason why that's important and the ethos by which we design that on, it's about local communities. I love going to areas in the U.S. that are just different than anything I've known, anything I've seen, anything I've been around. The, the difference between California Friday nights during high school football season and Texas Friday nights during high school football season. The... Uh, we we were in a town the other day called Frog Lick. Yeah. Like they have a Frog Lick festival. Interesting, <laughs> interesting place to be. So th there's, <laughs> yeah, but but that's well, that is America. very important to our core. And what happens with a lot of manufacturing companies, and we've also heard this with the the factory town. A company comes in, buys five, six, seven manufacturing companies jams them all together in a town, leaves it there for 20, 20 years, doesn't really invest in that plant much more over the next 20, 25 years. The plant becomes too outdated. They shut it down, kill the town, and move it to somewhere else. We've heard this story over and over again, especially if you're up towards Detroit or anything like that. This is, this is close to home. So we wanted to make sure mm -hmm. that after we exit these manufacturing companies, the decision-making power is still in those local communities. They choose what's done with their factories, not some person sitting at a desk so far away that they don't even understand how, how this place functions. So by giving the entire national portfolio to the employee level, mm -hmm. we protect those local communities. That's huge. That's, yeah, that is huge. Um, do you get a lot of thank you cards from people? <laughs> <laughs> You, you get a lot of people believing, uh, thinking it's too good to be true. Yeah. You, um, a lot of people have heard promises like this that 
that ended up being unfulfilled. And so th th there's an education of, hey, here's the reality of it is. Here's th th that is why I'm always very clear about the fact that it is this is a strong play also on the investor side, because the first question everybody goes is, well, why would you give it away? And it's like, well, no, there's a functionality to the financial side of this that makes it make sense, too. Right. But really, mm -hmm. you what you what we see is when we go to buy a company. The conversation's drastically different than when other people buy companies. I've, I've actually been told by owners in the past that they accepted our offer, which was significantly lower than, than another offer because we were going to take care of their people. And most of the mm -hmm. owners that we buy companies from end up taking equity back into our fund. Yeah. Because the, these are people that have decided they want to retire but they acknowledge all of the work that these employees have put in for 20, 30 years, and they want to make sure they're taken care of. Yeah, well, and I'm sure that you, there's a lot of pressure on a business owner. I can imagine being in that position and say you have 50, 200, the number is arbitrary, uh, employees that have been, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears for what you have built this, in this manufacturing plant and what you guys do. And yeah, now I'm old and I'm ready to like move on. I'm just tired. And, uh, but what does that do for almost what feels kind of like my kids in a sense, you know, I'm responsible for them. I don't want to throw them to the wolves. I don't want a big nameless faceless corporation to come in and, you know, not only likely poorly treat the people that are here, probably run the company a completely different direction. And if they, like you were saying before, if they choose to just go somewhere else, they up and leave. Well, now it could kill this little town that, you know, everybody, you know, had grown to love. That was, you know, this manufacturing company was the backbone for a lot of the people in that community. I can imagine that there's a lot of um, internal and emotional struggle for an owner operator at that level when they're trying to decide how to uh, navigate that. Yeah, and, and I'll even put a cherry on top of that. Most legacy manufacturing companies, the name on the side of the building is the founder's last name. They, they, they don't want their name still there while people yeah. are being mistreated. They've built it. I mean, think of how resilient just in the last two decades these, this, these owners are. In the last two decades, they've had the dot-com crash. They've had 9-11. They've had the uh, they've had the 2008 crash. Mm -hmm. They had COVID. I mean, th this is in the last two decades. Some of these companies are 7,500 years old. They've made it through everything. They don't want to see somebody come in and destroy it. So that is a core yeah. chunk of this: is how do you really take care of right. companies that that are truly the backbone of the United States? Yeah, entirely. And there's a um, a phrase that you use that I want to ask you about and if this applies here and it's just the idea of revitalizing manufacturing what does that mean to you and is this part of that yes so I hate the term save jobs okay the and here's why blacksmiths should not have jobs today that is a reality Saving a job is not the core importance. 
revitalizing a person's job or a person's skill sets or a company. That is important. That is the growth. That's the forward movement. I would like my employees to Mm. continually revitalize so their jobs are safer, they're easier on their bodies, they're getting paid more, they're more effective, they're more fulfilled, they're more happy. But the only way you can do that is to revitalize them, add life back into it. So we, that is why it's so important in what we do that the term is revitalization. This is not saving things that should not exist. You're taking the blacksmith and you tell, teach him how to run a sheet metal press. Hey, same skill set. You still understand the metal working, all that. But we're going to get you to a point that it's safer and it's better and, and it matches the current economy. So that, that is what we mean by the revitalization. Well, the other part right. of that is. If I can revitalize a person, okay, I take somebody who's been doing a job that's hard on their body for 30 years and they come home exhausted and they come home not making very much money and they, they're, they're grumpy. They go home, they sit in their lazy belly, watch TV, wake up at 5 a.m. the next day, go back. They do the job. They go home. They are grumpy. They sit on the lazy boy, crack a beer, do, do it over and over again. Or I can take that same person, revitalize their skill sets, get them some more money, make sure when they go home, they feel fulfilled. They've got energy. They've got, they, they, they've got love to give to their families and their neighbors. What happens to their entire community? We revitalize the entire community. You, we've all seen the movies of those factory towns that are just dingy and like, oh, yeah, I'll diss it. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. I, I, I'm fortunate right. enough that some very early Tesla people work on my teams and the energy that they have coming out of that because they knew they were changing the world and they were doing it in a special way. So that is what revi- revitalization is. So it's really, I mean, cause we were talking about this earlier with the systems and optimizing and how can we make it easier to accomplish X, Y, and Z and create reach our goals as a business, mm-hmm. that's part of it. But then there's also the individual, there's the community that they're involved in. And I, I mean, even just to repeat again, the individual, because the sense of purpose and fulfillment that you can find and realize it, you start to have this, you go through this healthy self-discovery process. And um, that only, not only affects the individual, but everybody else around. It's that butterfly effect and it is a compounding effect at that. So revitalizing manufacturing is goes way beyond the idea of or the term manufacturing itself. And that's kind of the beauty of it. That's really cool. I love, I love how you uh, display that for us. So let me ask you this. Is there any other question that I didn't ask you that you'd like to touch on because I've got some fun <laughs> questions for us that we're going to rapid fire here shortly. But I absolutely want to make sure that you have the opportunity to just share what's been on your mind, any thoughts, takeaways, um, wrap up points. It's the floor is yours and then we'll pivot into some fun stuff. The only one we, we offer to everybody, if go to mrca.net, it's you've got a way on there to actually get a direct meeting with me. I, we, we, we are all about sharing information and talk to people. If you're interested in investing with us, it's also there. 
if you want to just know what random stuff we're doing, check out our uh, our LinkedIn, our socials. We we've got a ton of stuff on there. On hey, um, we thought this is cool. That's weird. Like, well, what's going on? So <laughs> there's just a constant stream of what's going through people within our uh, our organization's minds. Yeah, that's amazing. And I will be sure to link all of that stuff in the show notes or the description, whatever we want to call it. But audience. It's all there for you, and you can link up with Jason and his team and the company and what they're doing. It's big things. But Jason, let's talk about you for a second. Question number one, what's your favorite thing you own and why? Uh, I, I'm not one that likes to own things all that much. <laughs> so um, I, I, I've got a bunch of animals. I just love animals. And, and we're not talking normal animals. I like farm animals. So <laughs> that's my go-to. <laughs> Yeah, you're on the ranch. Tell us a couple of the animals uh, that you that you have right now. We've got horses, pigs, donkeys, goats, dogs, chickens. We're about to have a bunch of baby pigs coming out. They're all little minis, so they're like that that big. Yeah, it's real cute, <laughs> dude. That's cool. Oh, yeah. that keeps life exciting for sure. As if you weren't busy enough, right? <laughs> all right. Question two: If you were to write a book tomorrow. What would it be about, and so what would you title I, it? Uh, no wrong answers. The, there is actually one in, in the works right now, but it's uh, too uh, too stupid to say no, just uh, or just smart enough to make it work. And I think one of the things a lot of people forget as they become entrepreneurs is that that ignorance early on is helpful. Because it, it makes you ask questions that once you've been doing it too long, you get, oh, no, this is the way we do it. So just really that concept of stay in it and, and, and just stay kind of the learner is super important. Oh, I love that. That's a great answer. And that's a real thing that you're working on too, right? You said? It, is, it has been in the works. <laughs> okay, cool. Do you have any, are you allowed to share what you're aiming for as far as launch or when this could potentially be public? Oh, no. Uh, we, we're, we're probably talking a couple years. There we go. Cool. Well, good, good, good. Well, we've got a couple of years to continue to uh, build up the appetite for it. And that, that'll be a good one. So question three, if you couldn't have this career, what would be your dream job or career? If you couldn't do what you do now? It's an interesting one because I've actually never done anything else in my, in my life. Um, I started the first one when I was 15. Uh, so... Um, Honestly, if, if it, I think I'd go, I'd go into ranching or farming. Uh, it's, I, I really, I really like that entire world. Hmm. Cool. That's awesome. Well, and you can get to kind of do it a little bit. You're, you're having your yeah. cake and eat it too. That's a good call. Uh, number four, favorite emoji. What's your favorite emoji? <laughs> I don't know the last time I used an emoji. Really? You're a non-emoji <laughs> user. Well, this is breaking news I, here, I Jason. Still type, I, I still type semicolon parenthesis when I do a smiley face. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> is there an emoji that you get sent a lot that you're just really confused by? Because, I mean, we all have heavy emoji users in our life, whether we are one or not. I, I get a lot of little like um little chicken or a little animal and it's usually hey this animal caused trouble oh. um so i guess those are my most used there you go there you go i like it i like it um pivoting into something else that i believe you're into my myself as well you're a whiskey guy from what i understand at least to a degree what's your go-to choice right now what what do you what's your uh your go-to sipper 
So that gets complicated. So my my go-to if I'm just drinking whiskey is going to be a bullet rye. It's good, good, good whiskey you can get just about anywhere. There's, and I'm blanking on the name right now, but, um, well, my, the other go-to is, has been whistle pig lately. So I'll, I'll go with whistle pig. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Those are both great answers and I enjoy them both. I will say that, uh, bullet rye is something I frequent a little bit more, um, just because, I think it's just more so the price point. What I have found yeah. is because <laughs> I really got like, I, f- I went into the deep end and I was getting the $85 bottles and stuff. And I loved it. I was like, I'm going to build this collection. It's going to look cool. I'm going to keep it in my office and all that, which is probably a bad idea, but outside of the money spending itself. But then I realized what happens when I buy a nice bottle of whiskey is I drink it <laughs> and then I don't have it. And now I'm out the money too. So it's like it, my fun thing is trying to find the best inexpensive stuff because I can I could share it, I could sip it, I can frequent that decanter that it's in. Uh, like a Wild Turkey 101 is really good for me. I or like Old Forester 86. So we did a blind testing out of my house. And my, my wife set it up. It was, it was beautiful. It, like right as the sun sets coming over the ranch oh. and I've got all of these whiskeys lined up. Okay. And, uh, there's some whiskey drinkers on my team that, that was there and they go and, uh, we're trying it out and everybody's going and everyone knows their favorite whiskey. Right. So they go, go all through everything. They're, oh yeah, just unanimously picked the same one and it was elijah craig yes i love elijah craig and in there was angels envy there was gibson's out of canada there were like there were we had some high-end stuff in there and elijah craig won <laughs> it was it's good everyone just like <laughs> it's the original bourbon it's, <laughs> yeah it's funny how that works out um it is interesting, but yeah, it is so, so fun. And I'm, I'm pulling us off of our rapid fire questions here, but I, <laughs> I enjoyed talking bourbon and, you know, sipping it, of course. Uh, and just like, especially even when you're comparing, you know, something that's higher end versus not so higher end, I guess. And I'm more so from price point is what I mean by that. And then you're like, oh yeah, the cheaper one is the one that I like the most. And it's like, sweet. Freaking awesome. It's always the best when you find that out. You're like, yes, it's cheap now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so not trying to invite myself over, but let me know next time you guys are doing a tasting. <laughs> always welcome. <laughs> yeah, man. That sounds good. Everyone's always welcome out, out here. That sounds good to me. Here, I've got two more questions for you, and then we'll put a bow on this thing today. If you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Teriyaki chicken and rice. Oh, we're we're becoming friends as you know as the moments <laughs> go by here. Yeah, that sounds great. You didn't even hesitate. <laughs> yeah, it's not a question. <laughs> I, I used to have this little place at the end of my block that served it for three dollars and ninety nine cents, and I they I would walk in and I didn't even have to order. I just put a five down and walk away. They they knew what you wanted. They they saw you coming. <laughs> That's awesome. Very good. Last question. What will your life look like in 12 months from now? Outside of work, within work, where are you going to be in 12 months? Well, we will be mid-acquisition cycle for the fund. So I will be somewhere 
in the U.S., most likely in a very small town. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And those little pigs that are on their way, they'll be bigger pigs. They will be bigger <laughs> pigs. We, we're, we should have a litter of 12 coming right now. Wow. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of bacon, man. Or am I allowed to say that? Yeah. That might sometimes that rubs people the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh man. Well, you know, I'm looking at the clock here and I promised you an hour and I have taken an extra nine minutes from you already. So Jason, thank you for being here, taking some time out of a nice Friday afternoon here. Be with me and the audience here on the Which Way Now podcast. Uh, your story's awesome. I'm going to link up everything in the show notes that you had suggested so that people can connect with you and follow along with your story and potentially even reach out to do business with you if that's if that's an opportunity for them that they're interested in. Uh, but, you know, we talked about a lot, the processes and systems and seeing how we can optimize not only the work that we do, but even in internally in our lives and our outlook on things and sharing sometimes what seems like a trade secret that should be kept to itself, maybe it's a good idea to create community out of sharing that with people. And, and it, it blossoms into this beautiful community. And, and you're doing that in the way with MRCA, with the, with the company of giving the money back to the people, so to speak, and empowering them to live a richer, fuller life inside and outside of the office. You're a good dude. You represent a great cause. And I appreciate your time, Jason. This was good. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening, all the audience out there. If you could leave a like, a review, a rating, wherever you're at on this, I appreciate it. Jason will appreciate it. And until next time, keep on working on yourself and we're all going to grow together. Peace out. Well, that does it for this episode. You can always reach out to me directly on my Instagram at evanshank75 with any thoughts or questions you may have. I'd love to connect and hear your story. Make sure you follow and subscribe and also leave a review on whichever platform you're listening to this on. My only question to you is, which way now? 